Hi, folks. Um, today I'm talking to Sue Higginson, who's a Greens politician in the Upper House in New South Wales. Um, I met Sue on the uh, uh, on the front line at the first Bulgar action uh, this year in January. And Sue, you told me that your life's goal has been to, to save native forests for logging. And that's why you became a lawyer and head of the Environmental Defender's Office. And that's why you became a politician. And that's why you're now back on the front line. So could you just tell me why that's your passion? Why that's your uh, your driving driving force? Sure. Uh, look, it's probably a bit multi-layered and a bit complex. But yeah, look, it started, you know. It, in some ways, yes, that's a, that's a thread. That's one thread in terms of my life's work to protect the environment, whether it's been through activism, through law and now through politics. But um, in terms of the forests, uh, it did start when I was a young person and um, uh, it, I think it was probably solidified when I joined the campaign uh, to protect the old growth forests in New South Wales back in the very early 90s. And what I saw then, uh, you know, was life-changing. You can't unsee those sort of things where you see um, an incredible, alive, old-growth forest that has never been touched uh, or, you know, disturbed um, by such brutal m machines. And, and you see these incredible old-growth trees that are the homes to some of the world's rarest, most unique, iconic wildlife. Um, and then, yeah, the next day you turn up and there's just a giant yeah. hole in the forest and, you know, you, you actually get to see then. It, you know, it's, it's a journey of learning. Um, you get to see what's actually happening on the front line. And, you know, it's the, it's the trees that go, it's the soils that degrade, it's the waters that get dirty, um, and it's all of those compounding impacts starting in these incredible, incredible environments that take hundreds, thousands, if not millions of years to, um, to develop and grow and, and um, evolve. So that's where it started for me. I mean, that said, there was probably something before that in my childhood or whatever that provided an, the appreciation. But in terms of the actual journey of being compelled um, and finding that resistance to the state that is insistent on destroying these environments. Um, and, you know, let's face it, in the 90s, that's where, uh, you know, we stood in front of bulldozers and we camped in the forest. And, you know, we actually, because we showed up, that forest is now still there. Um, so, you know, the impact of knowing what you can do with community together on the front line and actually turn up that morning is the difference between that forest environment surviving or that forest environment being destroyed. Um, so in those days, uh, back in the 90s, we were talking about, you know, the last of the old growth forests in New South Wales. There was sort of, you know, an estimated 4% of old growth forests left at the time. And it was our mission at the time to protect every every bit of it um and of course then came the introduction of 
actually the resistance against a state that was hell-bent on succeeding. And that's when uh, I kind of was awakened to what that actually means and what it looks like and how that plays out and how deeply difficult that really is. Uh, you know, for example, just one brief kind of characterization of that is, so we were trying to protect the old growth forest. So all of a sudden, the state started telling us that what we were trying to protect was an old growth forest, you know, you guys are lunatics. This is so and then come the nuances of this war almost, this war between um, a state that is insistent on exploiting this incredible resource that is our that, that are the forests and the people that want to protect them, um, and the people that, you know, kind of understand these forests and understand their function and, and how important they are to to all life on earth, um, you know, and yeah, and of course, I was incredibly fortunate because actually at the core of this movement of people were actually really, really well-educated people in terms of science and earth system science and ecology and um, how all of these, these sort of forest components all function together in terms of science. Um, you know, so this idea that the state was saying, oh, but it's okay to log these forests, they grow back, etc." but then actually understanding what these forests really, uh, how important they really are and, and how much we are destroying them by logging them. So I can understand why you went to law and I only recently, I'm really new to this, but I only recently discovered that people can't, force the Forestry Corporation, which the New South Wales government owns, which manages so-called the forest, can't even force them to obey the law. They're, they're just, they're able to be lawless because only the government can enforce the law and they, and they don't enforce the law. Was that, was that part of the reason you decided that um, you had to move from law to politics? Uh, yeah, look, it's a bit, it's a little bit more nuanced than that because, you know, as, so as an activist on the front line, I was part of that incredible campaign, part of the Northeast Forest Alliance, where we were protecting the old growth forests. But what we were also doing was working to protect the old growth forests, put them into national parks and reserves, and then whatever else was left on the public forest reserve in terms of logging to try to improve those logging practices so that we were um, engaging in ecologically sustainable forest management, which, you know, it's an international concept, et cetera, had some science and technicality to it and some rigour. So we were working very hard for what was called a comprehensive re uh, uh, representative reserve system. So looking at all our forest types across New South Wales, placing them into a reserve system, having a representative reserve system of those forest types and then whatever else was off reserve forestry corporation was allowed to manage those sustainably so there was a bunch of rules etc um, so in terms of being an activist and seeing that we could push government uh, to create this kind of system of forest management um, that was a really empowering thing but um what actually compelled that to happen was, you know, a government that was willing to engage. There were court cases that were forcing the government to look at the laws and the way they were currently uh, inadequate. Um, and then there was a community, obviously, that was supportive of that. Um, 
one of the things I suppose, yeah, going into law in the 90s or the late 90s um, was that I think as a young activist and going through that system, I saw what I would consider a system that was kind of more accountable and it was it was um, a system that was embracing the notion that we had to protect the environment. You know, it was part it was part of an international scene. Like you just go back to the nineties for one second, and we were looking at you know that's where we had Rio de Janeiro, where internationally people were gathering from all around the world to say, hey, we've been exploiting the environment globally for so long and so hard. We're going to need to put some limits on this. We're going to need a system of environmental laws that respects nature to some extent, and and actually places limits on the amount of extraction and resource exploitation we're undertaking. And so in New South Wales and Australia, we actually embraced that. You know, in 1995 in New South Wales, we saw the Carr Labor government elected um, with a commitment to protect the old growth forest. So all that work that we had been doing in the early 90s to 95 was coming to an honest kind of functional um, reality. It was kind of like, oh, wow, we've raised the alarm bells. We've got a government that's listening. There'd been court cases. So it was a very exciting time for a young person who was engaging in the acts of democracy, engagement, politics, law, uh, and the intersection, of course, environmental laws, the intersection of law and science. So it was a very exciting time. We saw the Threatened Species Conservation Act introduced. We saw forestry, uh, a new forestry uh, law, and we saw the expansion of our national park estate. So I went into law um, really enthusiastic, almost as a kind of, you know, a real believer in the system that, oh my gosh, it works. It's amazing. You put the, you put the case on the political stage and we get laws that respond to that. And it was so exciting. And I just thought, oh my God, we actually are going to get this okay. We're going to, we're going to allow certain development and we're going to really consider the environment in the mix and we're going to protect our forests. And wow, it's all going to be, we're going to get clean water and we're going to, and you know, that was 95. And um, so I knew uh, uh, after a couple more years of being on the front lines, I got a tap on the shoulder by a lovely friend who was a lawyer and said, hey, mate, you can't do this all your life. You're going to burn out. And I had, you know, I had a little kid and I, it was sort of like, you've got to get do something else. And, and this person said, you know what? You've got law in you. Just go and do it. You'd make a great lawyer. And so I sort of went, wow. I didn't know whether I was going to be able to succeed in law or not, but went to my first year in law school, didn't realise, but I was just having a ball. I loved it. I sort of found this language that mm. I wanted to speak and it was the tool that was going mm. to protect the environment. So this was the way of now using those laws that I had seen develop to protect the environment. And protecting the environment through law seemed like such a logical and obvious thing to do. But then what started to happen was it was almost like by 1998 and then by 2002, so many of these new laws were just getting all watered down, yeah. forestry, had its own laws on the public estate and it was logging hell for leather. It was almost like, it was almost like, look, we've protected some forests, the rest are ours, just get on with it, leave us to it and we'll do what we're going to do. Now, I, you know, obviously as a, as a lawyer, uh, there, so what happened at that point 
there were many people who took to the forests again and started working on campaigns to try to highlight that this wasn't working. We'd kind of hit the, and we needed more forest protected because, um, you know, it, 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 what we'd what we'd envisaged wasn't coming to fruition. And mm. um, I was in the law working on many things, trying to protect the environment through law. But of course, yeah, forestry, the government had made forestry immune to yeah. public um, litigation. It basically had said only the EPA or only the regulator can take forestry cases uh, and hold forestry to account. So that kind of really uh, ostracised or alienated the ability for uh, third parties, or as we call them, uh, 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 objectors or communities to enforce forestry laws against forestry. So, you know, I just watched the law, and it wasn't just in relation to forestry, it was in relation to all our environmental laws, mm. threatened species, etc. Mm. I just watched us go down this kind of, from this high point, down this slippery slope. And every year of legal practice, I just couldn't, I suppose I kept taking the hits thinking, oh, well, we'll try something else. Oh, we'll try yeah. this. Or, yeah. Oh, we'll keep keep engaging a law, surely. you know. And we did. Look, we had some wins on certain environmental fronts. Um, but frankly, the last 12 years of coalition government in New South Wales, where let's face it, the co whatever that coalition agreement is in New South Wales government, and we don't know what that agreement looks like, but whatever it is, it would seem that the National Party of New South Wales tends to always get the natural resource portfolios and controls the natural resources ministry um, uh, minister positions. And, you know, we've seen that um, for a long, long time, the National Party ideology and um, the implementation of policy in New South Wales is based on uh, resource extraction, and it's been very anti-science. Uh, things things may actually be changing a bit now, but not you know not fast enough. Hence, hence, you know, twelve years for me in um, at the Environmental Defenders Office and working as a public interest environmental lawyer. Um, it 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 was a very challenging time, um, and I suppose it got to a point where I. Couldn't, I just kind of went, right, I've got to get to the place where we make these laws because it's not working anymore. I want, to, I, I want to be closer to the place where I can try and influence these laws because I now, I've spent years, I, I saw what good laws look like. I've seen what absolute shit laws look like that don't work to protect the environment and work to protect vested interests and exploitative interests um, and somehow, yeah, six months ago, I found myself in this place at Parliament. So um, you've had you've had six months in the game. How would you describe the the, the politics of this now that you, you've seen it up close? And, and give us an insight, if you can, via the what you call the koala wars. What what have you learned about where the power is and why it is wielded in this way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's been a, it's, in some ways, it's been a bit shocking, in some ways, perhaps not so shocking. It's, you know, this place just seems so disconnected from, and so removed from the natural environment and from the decisions, you know, we're making decisions here that seem so removed from 
the very heart of the place that is being impacted by the decisions. Um, you know, the koala wars, uh, I mean, that was, uh, it's just bizarre how that kind of has played out. Um, you know, that's played out perhaps more so in relation to private lands and private interests. But essentially, um, you know, the war is a war on nature. The war very much came straight from the heart of the National Party. That's where it started. Uh, they are the proponents. They're the instigators of the war. They're the ones on the battlefields, if you so, so to speak, i.e. whether it's the member for um, Clarence who's now resigning, you know, Chris Galaptus. He... He is one of the warriors on the front line against koalas. John Barillaro, who we now know, um, you know, is claiming that he's very unwell and, um, you know, uh, uh, is getting sort of mental health exemptions from criminal charges. Um, you know, he is somebody who led the charge. Uh, that said, that said, it's not just New South Wales, because if you remember at the time, you know, Barnaby Joyce was leaning into this as well, you know, it was... Um, it's these people, um, and they are more often than not, they are men who are in these positions who claim to represent the people on the land. Um, and that is really, really the, the, the sort of, I mean, it is just bizarre that that is somehow what is, what, how it's played out and these characters. Because, uh, you know, I mean, uh, um, so many of us, from the land, are uh, on the land, working on the land to protect the land. We love the land. We love nature. Um, and yet there seems to be this small group of people in positions of power um, that are at war with nature for some reason. Um, it is, And then there are, of course, the interests that that small group of people represent. We know that uh, the National Party, for example, we saw some of the federal National Party making a public claim that actually, you know, farmers or people on the land are actually not the bulk of their constituent base anymore, that, uh, you know, more miners and mining workers uh, and the resource extraction industry they see as part of their constituent base and a very important constituent base. And so that's what we've seen kind of played out in the political field. And of course, you know, the damage and the collateral are these incredible iconic animals that are now facing extinction. They just, they don't have a voice and they can't survive in this war. Do you know Leslie Williams at all? Uh, yes, yes. I find this, as someone new to the politics of this, really interesting that, that she was a, a National Party member in, in Port Macquarie Port. Mm -hmm. and she has moved to the Liberal Party. Now, I'm sure she's got good reasons to do with koalas and all the rest of it, but I just wonder whether she smells a change in the air in some of these coastal National Party seats. Um, what 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 do you think about what, what she did and... Um, and how she's how it might play out in Port Macquarie, where the Nats have put up a very hard line, you know, um, more, more more tougher protest laws and more logging. Um, is there is there a feeling of of a shift or or, or not? Do you think? 
Uh, yeah, I think there's absolutely a feeling of a shift. I think there is a real shift. I think there's a tangible evidence of a shift because, you know, uh, Leslie is an incredibly effective local member. She yeah. is somebody who is not polarising. She is very capable of dealing with much more complex electoral politics and she's a, you know, she's a person who's who is perhaps quite connected to her community and her the, the environment within which her community is functioning. Um, she's also a woman with a vision. You know, she's a, 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 a she's a, a she's a very intelligent woman. Um, now, not only has Leslie um, aligned herself with those who want to protect koalas and see an end to any kind of wars on the environment or any unreasonably harsh approach to the environment. Uh, so has Jeff Provost in the tweet. Now he's mm. National Party through and through. Um, and he is, um, um, and again, another coastal National Party seat. He's been in the gig for a long time. But Jeff is, um, Jeff aligned himself with koalas and the koala community. Now, you look at uh, Jeff's constituents, constituency in the Tweed, um, Tweed has pretty much lost its koala populations. It's one of the koala oh. populations that's virtually extinct now. Um, at the same time, there is an incredible koala effort to um, uh, recover koalas. It's where there's a uh, koala recovery centre there, a hospital which is associated with Corumban, which is leading the vaccination chlamydia trials. And Jeff Provost has been a champion, basically, for that project as a National Party member mm. of the New South Wales government. Now, the background to Jeff Provost and his education and understanding and connection to this issue is... Um, a bunch of incredibly hardworking members of his community um, called Team Koala, who um, who literally uh, spent years sitting outside Mr. Provost's electoral office, writing to him, talking to him, taking him around the um, electorate, showing him the areas, talking to him directly about koalas, putting the evidence in front of him. Um, and I think, again, it's a case of you can't unsee, you know, or unlearn when you learn. Um, and basically, I put very much a large part of the reason to the Koala Wars is these men who fought, who fought it, they, um, they just have been very close-minded to the science and the evidence. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of the positive, wonderful side of the regenerative agricultural movement, the farming movement, the regenerative uh, land care movement, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's pushed aside as being this kind of almost greeny thing uh, that is anti-progress, which is just, you know, it's a language that just doesn't make sense. It, it never really has. However... I'm just talking about the region I live in now, right? Just completely smashed by by the bushfires. Um, forests burned to the ground, uh, koalas, a little bit of habitat, and yet it, it's pretty obvious that there's a very intensive logging of native forests at the moment all over the state. Um, 
despite, you know, official reports saying, could you leave it alone? Could you leave it alone? Could you could you let it repair? Could you protect the bit that that wasn't burned? So all I can think of is that the, the Nats have said to the the Liberals, well, if you, you don't let us go hell for leather and, and do this, then you won't have a government. Um, why why are the why is the, the 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 government just letting letting it rip? What what, what is the reason for it? Uh, look, uh, <laughs> I just that, I mean that's sort of the million dollar question, really. Um, the yeah, I mean the evidence and the case to protect the forests at the moment is overwhelming, and to end logging the public native forest estate. It's overwhelming evidence. Um, there is there is a sort of, there's quite a deeply cultural element to it, I think. Um, and Susie um, Russell said that to me last week, that it's that, that macho thing that it's, that's what, that's what you're there for, to, to knock it down. And I don't, I don't fully understand it, but I mean, I, I live in a, I live in a little, town in in Comboyne that um was completely the plateau was rainforest and and that's how the town started was knocking it all off I've got a tiny workers rental that's made of tallow wood and rosewood <laughs> just like what um Warhope down the road is a is a is a timber town is that what it's about that it was built on timber so they want to keep timbering sort of thing uh, look, I, I think, I think it's, uh, I think there is that is a part of it. That is absolutely part of it. But there's some more kind of tangible things actually happening and playing out. So one is that the government, you know, there has not been any leadership. There's been a kind of a, a dereliction, really, of the duty of the National Party, uh, I would say, and other people in in positions to actually. Uh, try and push aside the case and the evidence and the economics, etc., of changing practice. There's also at the moment an entire corporation, state-owned corporation, the Forestry Corporation, that is driving the um, the case that the logging that is taking place is totally sustainable and that. It is a good thing to do. Um, you know, can, there I, is, can I just interrupt yeah. you, Sue? Because yeah. as I said, I'm new to this, and I thought sustainable logging was that you'd just choose a tree or two or whatever, and, and that you know you'd let the forest grow, but and you'd but you'd manage it. I mean, I've been on oh god knows how many state forests now, and it, it's effing clear fell. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, it's yeah. just clear fell. It's nothing to do with sustainability, and mm. that the forests that they're logging that. The trees are—they've uh, got potential to to grow into big trees, but they're not letting—they're not letting it. It, it, it anyway. It, it just seems like it, yeah, it, look. It's it, I, it it's, really opened my it. eyes. You know, it, yeah. It just I get it. I totally get it. And it's, it's quite vandalism. shocking. It's actually it's vandalism. I I totally agree. I totally agree. It's quite shocking. Like yesterday, I was at the Double Duke protest in the you know further north than where you are, and um, you know that's a forest, another forest that was burned uh, in some areas severely, in other areas not as severely. Um, I arrived, you know, the sun. I arrived sort of just on um, dawn, and. As the um, so you don't I wasn't quite aware of where I was and what I was going to see and of course the sun rises 
um, and the, the you know the chorus starts and it's just so mm. loud and and amazing and I look to one side which is unlogged and I'm looking at a forest that has been harmed by the fire the previous logging but it's recovering you know it's mm. there's it, it's looking like it's just trying with all, it's all to recover um, but it's looking fragile and vulnerable you know and then on this side where they have logged oh, it's just stump after stump after stump after stump of these, as you say, these beautiful-sized trees. And, you know, I was talking to an ecologist yesterday about that very thing and what he was saying is, ah, and the, the, the hardest thing at the moment is, you know, we've sort of the narrative has been, oh, we need the, to protect the hollow-bearing trees. We need those older trees for all the hollow-dependent species, of which there are um, a number that are threatened with extinction and they require those hollow-bearing trees. But this ecologist was saying to me, oh, and the difficulty we've got with talking about we need to protect the hollow-bearing trees is that we then allow forestry to be going for those next-generation trees. Um, and, of course, yes, they have to protect one or two recruitment, but we're allowing them at the moment to be logging these uh, you know, younger but uh, mature trees. And he was saying, and they are the ultimate trees for the nectar and the other yeah. species that require those. So we're just, again, with the damage we're doing in terms of biodiversity and the extinction crisis is untold. It's just uh, remarkable, the damage we're doing. So, so look, there is this, when you look, there is almost like a... Um, there is a digitally created uh, forestry corporation out there which is full of comms genius. You know, you kind of, you go to their website and if you follow oh. the website, it's like these guys are saving the planet right now. And then when you go and you look on the ground at what's happening, you go, oh, my gosh, this is just polar worlds these worlds are miles apart from each other um because there is in just no uncertain terms these forests are literally being destroyed um whereas on the forestry corporation's website you've got this incredibly polished green sustainable sort of industry that's happening so you know um at the moment also i think that we the other element to what's going on is it is terribly politically polarized um you know they're I'm realising that, you know, there really is still a war going on in the forests. Um, yeah. It was described like that in the 90s when we were yeah. on the front line. And that's why we call it the front lines, you know, because... Yeah. And, and so this absence of clear leadership on part of the government, and it is the government because the Forestry Corporation is owned by the government, its shareholder is the treasurer. Um, and so right now that lack of leadership of a vision about what these forests should and what they are meant to be doing right now in our journey as humans living on this planet and their role in our survival um, is just not being told properly it's people like me um, people like you people on the front lines um, the scientists in the academies that are writing brilliant papers right now uh, you know we've seen people um, uh, whether they're forest scientists or climate scientists uh, we've seen the economists come into the frame in the last sort of probably about oh maybe decade more the last sort of eight eight years they've come in and they're bringing the economic case forward 
Um, and of course, you know, there's been the conservationists that have bringing the conservation argument forward for decades and decades. Um, but the lack of leadership, you know, I mean, I, 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 the current Minister for Forests right now, and let's remember, there is no Minister for Forests. He is the Minister for Agriculture. Uh, he just happens to be responsible for forests as well. So, you know, we don't even have a Minister for Forests anymore. We, we, we sort of, we're calling it, uh, you know, it goes within the agricultural portfolio. Or hey, Sue, and, I, I sort of, Sue, yeah. I sort of disagree with that because oh, yeah. they, they call it harvesting. That they they see the forests as a, a as a, as a crop. That, that that's how they see it. That they that they don't that they don't see it as anything but that. So I reckon agriculture sort of sums it up in a way. Well, I want it back. I want it the forests back, please. <laughs> they, um, it's really interesting, you know. I um, the minister um, actually does talk about native forest logging as farm forestry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I pointed out to him, hey, I'm a farmer and when we farm, we plant stuff and then we harvest it. You can't, yeah. what's happening right now, we, we need to make no mistake here, what's happening now is this is not farm forestry and they are not harvesting. This is logging um, and it's natural resource exploitation. That's what it is. This is something that the earth has provided and grown just like, uh, you know, the coal in the ground and we're taking it. The fact that it comes back and grows back sometimes is beside the point. This is resource exploitation. That's what it is in no uncertain terms. Um, I just want to check this out. A lot of people say, like, the Forestry Corporation, so they they manage the forest so do they organise the contractors to cut it down and then sell it to Pentark um, and, and the other sawmillers? Is that how it works? There are wood supply agreements. <laughs> so the Forestry Corporation, well, the New South Wales government, enters into a deal uh, with a corporation yeah. and uh, they provide a wood supply agreement, which is a legally binding contract, and they yeah. say we will provide this many cubes of particular types of timber from our public native forest estate. You will pay a royalty, but yeah. you will then get all of the commercial rights to that. And right. the contractors are organised between the corporation and the forestry uh, the forestry, so the corporate entity at the other side yeah. of the wood supply agreement yeah. and the government, the forestry corporation. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the contractors ultimately are under the uh, control in terms of what, how they log the, um, the forestry corporation, so the New South Wales government, but the corporation, it, the, the commercial entity, the corporation at the other end, uh, receives the products from the contractor, so obviously is in a very tight is in the relationship with the contractor, right. the financial so relationship. So is it true that Forestry Corporation makes a loss? Oh, my word, my word, absolutely. How much would and they so, lose a year? Uh, so it varies from year on year. Last year they lost $9 million. So it cost New South Wales taxpayers $9 million to log right. our public native forest estate. Right. The year before... It costs nineteen million dollars. Yeah. Uh, in contrast, in contrast, and I think this is a really important point to the absence of leadership and vision and direction and the fueling of the wars in the forest uh, on part of the government is 
the plantation softwood estate returned $47 million to the New South Wales uh, uh, coffers last year. So whilst we've, while we were losing $9 million on our native hardwood forest estate, the softwood plantation forest estate generated $47 million. It's clear where forestry is and where the future is and where the current economic kind of driver is. Because the reality is, the reality is, let's think about this. What are we actually doing when we log these forests? Well, we're not doing the things that we really need to do with timber. So, for example, all of the high-end uses of wood products right now are, in fact, coming from the softwood plantation estate. For example, building houses that people live in, the very thing that we kind of, I mean, let's go back to why we ever cut trees down, you know, what was it? I suppose it was for building houses and firewood, I suppose, uh, you know, now very few people actually use firewood from uh, the forest, they have other forms of heating. Um, and of course, uh, we're building houses not out of these hardwood forests. So what we're using these hardwood forests for right now is honestly the most absurd concept that imaginable we're it's using floorboards it's, floorboards and wood chips is, is, is that it's the floorboards component is a tiny component and let's remember that's for the very very high-end market i.e very rich yeah 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 i don't think that they are actually people that really need um our old growth and our uh public native forests to be logged for their floors. I'm sure they can afford alternative products. Um, but let's face it, the bulk of our public native forest in New South Wales is going to pulp for paper. Um, it is going for um, pellets for burning overseas in power plants. It is going for making pallets, timber pallets. This is our forests. They're going to make pallets to put products on uh, that can go on ships and circle around the supply chain um, they're going for fence posts um, and they're going for um, uh, some firewood um, and yeah a very small amount is going to incredibly wealthy high-end floorboard specialist market it's absurd so when, when i was reporting the uh the herons creek native forest sawmill um near kew there was this enormous truck it had uh, capital letters A-N-L, and I, I just couldn't believe it. The, 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 the punchline was um, Australian Native Landscapes, which I was told that that was a big wood chip truck, that there's so much waste from this hardwood planks that it goes to wood chips. So actually people are buying native forest wood chips as a native landscape. Like, what, what on earth is going on that that, that, that is allowed? Uh, well, again, this is just like some form of, uh, it's madness. Like, um, again, this is because for whatever the tangible and intangible reasons, we've got a government hell-bent on thinking that it's okay to log these public native forests still. It's because we've always done it, even though the case now and the end product has changed to an unjustifiable reality, they haven't caught up on the front end of this. We're, uh, for cultural reasons, for historical and traditional reasons, and for deliberate reasons, um, uh, uh, we are literally doing this to our public native forests. 
Uh, okay, so th- these are public native forests and we are making a loss selling them to big companies like Pentark, which are making a profit. Now, now that, that does a, a, a profit selling wood that, that um, it, it, it's not needed, it, you know, it's not necessary. So that indicates to me, well, in my, you know, if I was being very cynical, corruption um, but otherwise, it, it indicates to me that for, that for some political reason, the government thinks that they have to subsidise the jobs in, in the regions on logging. So how, how many jobs are there in, in native forest logging? And why can't we have a transition plan where we, we pay the people who are dependent on that uh, They pay them a, a redundancy payment and retrain them and like what why can't this be done um and i, I assume part of the reason is that is that labor is not pushing like labor is is supports it mm, absolutely i mean there it's it can be done we know it can be done uh wwf commissioned a, a report uh, a few months ago Frontier Economics and did a full economic analysis of what it would take um, and uh, what a just, actually I would suggest rather than just, it's a very generous transition would look like, It's um, which I support wholeheartedly. Yes, at the end of the day, of at the end of the day, we are talking about around about a 1,000 workers. Um, oh. I, I more than anyone, I more than anyone in this game want those workers to be completely supported out of our yeah. public native forest estate. I want them out there now, though. I want them out as fast as we can get them out. So I think there should be a serious premium to get people out as fast as possible. And But at the moment, WWF and, and part of that broader plan is what we know... Um, sorry, just to digress for one second. One of the other reasons we're still... The government is maintaining this um these workers in the unsustainable and what i would say insecure work because there's there's becoming less and less timber available to log we know that because it's not growing back fast enough um and um what's maintaining them there is the government knows it has not invested in the plantation estate to the degree it should have every parliamentary inquiry every report has explained this has been a failing so for the last 12 years the uh, government has virtually done nothing to expand the plantation estate even though all the evidence is that's where the future of logging is and the future of a timber industry is so in the absence of having done that work the government's kind of going oh well you know we'll carry on logging where we're logging so Uh, The Frontier Economics report identified that for $30 a year for the next 10 years, you could completely transition the workforce and move to a 100% sustainable uh, plantation-managed timber industry. We're already, remembering we're already getting about 80, somewhere between 82 and 86% of most of our timber needs from the plantation estate. So we're talking, you know, so it can absolutely be done. Um, there is a full, ex- also you've got to remember, there's a union movement involved as well. Uh, you know, the CFMEU, the F stands for forestry, even though it's retracted into a tiny, tiny kind of 
uh, union uh, component of the CFMEU, um, there is a still a quite powerful voice that is saying, if we were to end public native forest right forest logging right now, for the hardwood sector to come back online in the plantation sector, it would take a few decades, perhaps. So there would be a hole or a lag. But what I, what we, my position and what the Greens and others in the sector is saying is, well, unfortunately, that's the fault of, you know, governments not taking the lead. That lag position may have to happen now. Those hardwood jobs have to transition completely into the softwood and plantation sector that exists. And where they don't, those jobs don't exist, there's jobs in the creation of the regeneration of the yeah. public forest estate, or there are those uh, retrenchment packages available. And that's what the Frontier Economics Report s- sets out really clearly. But, but Sue, how, how many forest jobs would there be in, in the union movement? Like, from what I've seen, most of them are contractors. Most of them are, you know, in their own business. Like there's a few, uh, there's a handful. There's a there's a handful, and and I think the union, I think the CFMEU may well actually be at odds with itself a bit because the M in the CFMEU is the manufacturing side, which is the far side that the softwood industry is really yes. really innovative with. Um, so the forestry side of things, it. it Everything is transitioning, but the government is not leading, and that's where the failure is here. And and, and let's be fair, labor, labor is you know. I find the whole thing weird because these seats where all the forests are seem to me to be national party seats. So I, I can't really see the the real politic in it, um, apart from the fact that the CMF. CFMEU is, is is powerful in the Labor Party. Is it, does that make sense? Or I think I think that's true. I think I would also uh, just being quite political here. I would also say that I think that Labor has lost an enormous part of its own identity in terms of the environment side of the party. There is Lean, which is the environment side of Labor, the um, Labor Environment Network. I can't remember what the A is. But what I would say is that, uh, you know, that Labor, New South Wales Labor, is incredibly anthropocentric and and seems to have lost its connection to the environment. It seems to have lost the understanding of how deeply connected people are to the environment and the environment to the people and that really uh, we need to really respect that connection and I think Labor's lost that over time. Um, I I live in the very safe, forever safe seat of Mile Lakes and um, (laughs) (laughs) where a lot of the damage is being done and at the Save Bulga Forest camp in Elands, the the Labor candidate came up and the head of the Tari branch came up and just waxed lyrical about how they wanted an end to native forests and they were trying to lobby the, the state government or whatever. Now, it's all very well. You can say, well, they haven't got a chance of winning. But still, they must think, think there's something there for them in, in, to, to do it. Uh, I just, I, I think that no matter, I just think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think Labor probably knows that it's um, it's a 
you know, a, a mad, it's madness what we're doing in the forests. But I just don't think it has the political heart and courage to actually do the thing it needs to do. Um, I mean, I'm saying that, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that after this state election, Labor will uh, uh, rise to the challenge and do what Labor should do, and that is act on the science, the economics and the cultural um, and biodiversity arguments as to why we would now move to a protection model of our, a protection and management model of our public native forest estate. Um, you know, hopefully that is what will happen. That's what we're all channeling. <laughs> well, when I met you at the, the Bulga action, this is the first one in 2023, you said it has to happen now, it has to happen now. Now, the two major parties won't let it happen now. And um, presumably the, the protesters think that direct action is the, is the only way to try and bring it to public attention in the lead-up um, to the election. But one of the things that I found really interesting is that none of the big environment groups, Greenpeace, 350.org, because it's about climate change too, obviously, um, Wilderness Society, um, none of them have been supportive of the direct action. Um, the green green candidates have and 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 MPs like you, you know, going back to the roots of the Greens Party, I, I guess. But they they seem to be in their cushy jobs, writing reports, etc. But they, they they just, you know, we we this this Save Bulga Forest, it's volunteers trying to do all the media and the police liaison and the fundraising and the camps and everything, getting absolutely no support now. You know, the Bob Brown Foundation, yes, you know, it puts out, you know, uh, uh, posters that you can buy and put on your front row, uh, um, your front um, yard. But, you know, Bob Brown made his name on the front line with direct action. I mean, what's gone wrong? I mean, why have we, is it left to communities around the state to, to work their butts off as, as volunteers with, with no professional support at all from, from the, the big players? Mm. Apart from the Greens, I guess. Yeah. yeah what, look, what's gone on? What what, what has um, happened? I think in some ways, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, gosh, I mean, that's a really difficult question to know the answer to. I think that everybody cares. I think all of those people from those big organisations care, but I think that they are all kind of set in their campaign modes. I think many of them are focused on climate change. Many of them, I, 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 to be perfectly frank, I have Forest is about closely. climate change, Sue. Well, I, mean, I, it, it, I, know, don't, I know. Don't trees process CO2 or am I well, it's funny you say It's funny you say that because I'm Aren't literally... we worried about the Amazon being cut down? Haven't we gone to some international conference and say we'll, we'll save the forest? Like, am I stupid or, or, or is... No. Is, no, it's true. I'm not sure. The answer is I'm not sure why, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose some of those groups are national, so focusing on New South Wales right now would be something that isn't kind of on their frontline ticket in terms of uh, their campaign out goals. I think that everybody wants to, I know WWF, for example, wants to see and is working on it. For example, WWF Commission, the Frontier Economic Report, they are working on uh, transitioning, uh, working on the transition. I think they're currently advertising for a forest transition person to work on this specifically. Um, in terms of forests and carbon, absolutely. I've just commissioned the uh, 
Dr. Jen Sanger to undertake the carbon analysis of what it would mean to continue logging and what it would mean to stop logging in terms of carbon mitigation. And that she's put forward a very compelling case. I'll release that on Thursday when we announce uh-huh. our forest platform in the lead up to the state election. We'll be doing that this Thursday, so keep your ears open. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The argument, the climate argument to end logging our public native forest estate right now is really, really compelling. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think all those groups are really supportive. I think that it is, was also seen as a really challenging ground, a really hard ground to win, because basically I think everybody has been waiting for Labor to put their line in the sand and say, right, we're ready They're not now. going to. They're not um, going to, are they? They're just not. No. Well, I don't think they're going to between now and March, mm. but, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm hoping, like always, I'm hoping that in terms of, an electoral strategy, people will vote for Forrest this state election and send a loud message. Really interestingly, I'll tell you this, really interestingly, when I questioned the treasurer, who is the shareholder of the Forestry Corporation and the former environment minister, so knows very well about uh, Forestry Corporation and the lo- the finance losses and the predicament and the environmental uh, um, detriment that uh, over the landscape that logging a public native forest estate is causing. Um, when I said to him, ah, but, you know, surely you've looked at the books and surely you're looking at the figures here. I'm just trying to appeal to that economic argument. And he sort of he sort of looked at me, you know, with the, those eyes, like, you're telling me? I know, I know this. So who knows? Maybe, m- maybe the Liberals would stand up and say, we've got to stop logging our public native forest. Because we certainly know at the moment, politically, all those... Uh, independents or those teals that are running in the uh, inner city liberal seats in Sydney, uh, so far I'm pretty sure they're all on the record saying, yeah, God, yeah, why are we logging our public native forests? So, you know, where is the electoral pressure coming from? Well, clearly the Greens are leading and have been for years about making the case to end the logging of our public native forests and been standing with communities day in, day out. But now we've got this teal movement that has i I mean who knows how they will it will play out in march on march 25 it didn't play out particularly well in Mm. victoria so we're still looking at that translation of that strategy from federal politics to state politics and we don't know yet what that really looks like so do you think it's a (coughs) do you think it's a vote changer uh look i um I think it's real at the moment. It, I think it's potentially a vote changer. Absolutely, I'm. You know, I am. Uh, um, given my roots and where I started and why I'm here and the party I belong to, um, we believe firmly it's a vote changer. Um, but um, in terms of whether that will play out on March 25 is a separate question because the difficulty I see is that. Right now, so many people have got cost of living problems. They've got, you know, we, we actually really? have so many things in front of people, which, which you know, let's face it, this is what sort of corporate capitalism, this is what capitalisms and state-captured governments do. They make everybody so busy and struggle and so caught up, except for the people who don't have to be, that, you know, something like the forests out there in the back blocks, it's not front and centre. That said, uh, you know, I think that there are people in the cities, uh, particularly engaging in the climate argument that are, 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 and wanting 
action on climate change and those people who have been severely impacted by the terrible impacts of climate change, fires and floods, I think that they are picking up on the idea that forests are not only part of healthy forests and functioning forests and not only part of the climate uh, in terms of climate carbon drawdown and sequestration, um, but that forests are also part of landscape stability and resilience and they are fundamental to functioning water cycles. So I think, uh, you know, people are picking up on that and people are understanding that that's something when they are voting for climate, that they are actually voting for the natural environment and the resilience in the Australian landscape. Um, so so the, following this Save Bulga Forest movement, obviously the, the people up on the Bulga Plateau have been fighting 40 years for their forests. I mean, they, they, they know it, what they're doing, but they've come to the point of saying, well, the only way to save Bulga Forest is to stop native forest logging. So let's do actions all over the place, including in, you know, Lawn State Forest and Yarrett State Forest, which have never had an action before. But locals are locals are coming on board. So they're desperately trying to, you know, get into the media to make this an issue. And one thought I had about the big groups is maybe they think that direct action's counterproductive. But I keep thinking, well, it was only direct action that, that got the old growth forest saved um uh what 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 do you think what like is there is there a chance with all these incredibly important issues that for native forest policy to to break through this election and and is is direct action the way to do it or the only Um, way left to do it really i think look i think it actually does i think like any um you know strategic campaign, I think it requires many elements to it to be ultimately successful. And direct action is absolutely one of those components. You know, we saw it, you know, we saw it with the coal seam gas, even like take it out of the forest for a minute. We saw it with coal seam gas across New South Wales. And we saw that fight and that front line at Bentley um, outside of Lismore. I was there. I was there when the cops pulled out and that was incredible. Exactly. You live in an incredible area, I must say. Totally. It was a very convenient area for a successful direct action campaign, for just put it, you know, 12 case out of Lismore um, at that time. And um, but that was, you know, there was a multi pronged approach to that because there was significant political lobbying um, and political work happening to cancel licenses, etc. And and there was potential litigation being looked at. There were lawyers writing advices and legal letters, etc. There wasn't actually any litigation in the court. There, sorry, there was litigation around other CSG um, exploration projects up and down the coast. Uh, there was one, you know, closer to on the central coast. So there was litigation involved. There was political lobbying. There was an enormous community education and, and an awareness campaign. The um, And then, of course, there was direct action. And I think that's what's happening now with the forests. I think we're seeing... All of those elements, there's currently litigation in the court around Cherry Tree State Forest in the north and the legality of um, the way Forestry Corporation is currently making its harvest plans. That's actually on foot and will be heard just after the state election. Uh, There are people 
engaging in frontline action. I, I strongly suspect there'll be more. It seems like there's a momentum growing and more and more local communities mm. are watching what the other local communities are doing and jumping up and going, hey, we're going to do this too. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, and there's a political campaign happening. And certainly we as the Greens right now as a, you know, a significant force in New South Wales politics like we are in the Federal Parliament, like we are in the Victorian Parliament, um, it is a major campaign platform of ours. It's one of our fundamental um, uh, platform initiatives um, uh, going forward into this March 25 election. So in terms of our environmental uh, campaigns. This is one of our main focuses. You know, I mean, let's face it. We're talking about we're talking about two point four percent of the entire land mass of New South Wales, and yet, you know, it's such a small area that we are looking to protect, and yet it is two point four percent, which is so significant in terms of the richness of the natural environment of New South mm. Wales. You know, it's forests. I and mean, the tourism to... and the waterholes oh, and the, you know. That's right. Yeah, anyway. That's right. That's now, right. I'm really interested that you, you said that Matt Keane, who's a leading moderate and um, climate change um, proponent, climate change action proponent, is the sole shareholder because when um, I reported that the Yarrett State Forest a couple of weeks ago now the Forestry Corporation put out a, uh, a closure notice, an official notice under the regulations which completely closed the state forest, including mm -hmm. all the roads. And I went down a rabbit hole and it turned out that they actually hadn't closed the state forest, that they hadn't notified anyone about closure of, of, of public roads. The only people they told were the protesters. So it seems to me to be very clearly an act of bad faith to target one group of people um, and, and abuse abuse power. So why doesn't Matt Keane get them to behave in a lawful manner? Why does he <laughs> let them run amok and just lie and um, and and misuse their powers? Why doesn't I'll ask he him let that question? Clean up their act because the pub, yeah. no one you know you can't EDO can't. No one can say that's unlawful. They just. Mm. You know, the only reason they actually changed their forest closure notice when we we asked council and national parks, they were actually officially closing off access to a national um, uh, uh, to a nature reserve for six six months, closing the forest. And it was only when the council and national and um, New South Wales national parks rang up and said, "Well, where's your where's your notification to us that they changed it?" Um, it, it Another sort of thought I had is, oh, you know, Margot, you're now living in deep national party country and everyone just has a, a nod and a wink. And now, I don't know if that's fair, but it just seemed to be lawless to me. And um, I did administrative law a long time ago, but it just seemed to be to be um, an outrageous abuse of power. Um, it, it, you're right. It actually, it really is. I mean, I'm kind of glad you've looked at it and you're outraged by it because, you know, I... I've been watching for. I couldn't get anyone watching. interested in the in the movement, Chris, uh, Sue, including you, because you say, "Oh, they do it all the time." That I know. Just I know. I'm going. Oh, go on. How can that be? Come on, Matt Keane. You know, someone should have been yeah. sacked over that. The regional manager in Dubbo just he lied in a, in an official document. I just mm. anyway. Blah. Okay. So my other, 
sorry. They do it. Look, you know, frankly, they do it. Forestry Corporation, there are actually many people who have been engaging with Forestry Corporation over the 30 years that I have as well that honestly think that they are a criminal enterprise racket, you know, and that they are a protected racket um, because, you know, they all they have to do is call the police and say, we're the lawful ones, they're the unlawful ones. Whereas, uh, you know, in the old days where we could challenge Forestry Corporation, they were found often to yeah. be acting outside the law, often. That's why they created a kind of legal uh, kind of enclave for themselves to operate in um, where they were uh, uh, um, unable to, they, you know, beyond reproach. And that's, that is kind of what's ha what happens. Uh, you know, a fellow said to me yesterday after the double Duke State Forest uh, camp uh, blockade, he um he said to me, he goes, hey, just explain to me, like, who employs the contractors? You know, and we had to go through it all and I was explaining. Yeah. He goes, goes, geez, what a cushy job, you know. You just get all this protection and you just get to do this. You don't even have, this person was a farmer and he, and he literally said, they don't even have to grow their own product for God's sake, you know. Yeah. So you're right, it, this goes back to that whole, you know, it is actually about exploitation but they do it, it's happening in a terribly protected and and in some ways I look at it less as sort of corrupt and, uh, and that sort of thing. I look at it much more as it, there's a lot of incompetence going on there, unaccountability, messy stuff and, you know, yeah, a deeply sort of that's what, that's uh, what cultural thing. But, but Sue, that's what happens when you, you, you cancel out accountability. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's yeah. This is purposeful. It's not. Mm. Anyway, look, the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, yesterday there was a, um, a lock-ons at the uh, Herons Creek Native Forest Sawmill, the largest in New South Wales, I think, uh, near Kew, and it got really, really nasty. And to the extent that um, the police authorised the, the Pentarch people to, to try and lift a gate and lift up the protester and stretched a neck and I, I've just never seen anything like it and then the cops started arguing the case for native forest logging um, <laughs> and then uh, you know by the end of the day a, a 75 year old Elan's artist locked on it's the first time she'd locked on for 30 years she did it 30 years ago to try and save vulgar old growth she she walks out with bail conditions which I'd like to read to you um, she must not publish any writing or information to incite others to commit offences and she is not to go near or associate with any person involved in protesting. Now, the first thing I thought of is, is that a breach of the implied right to free speech and free political opinions under the Constitution? Because it doesn't say protesters engaging in a legal act, it says protesters. Mm. Now, Sue McAnally lives in Elands, where half the town is involved in the protest camp. The vast majority of people are protesting, but they are legally protesting. Um, what on, is this new? Is this normal? By the way, Sue walked out and said, you know, a protester picked her up, for God's sake, from the, the Port Macquarie cop shop, so she'd already breached. And then she was asked, well, what, what would you say to other people? She said, do it. It's worthwhile. So she's already breached a bail conditions. Um, it just seemed to me, as this this um, say bog uh, forest protest campaign has gone on, that it has stopped being civil. 
It has stopped being civilised, it's stopped being safety conscious and it is now literally trying to close down the protest. So my question is, is this just local cops going, oh, who gives a shit about people's rights or um, is, is there something coming from above that they want this closed down before the election? Uh, look, it's, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I think they're both really, um, I think it's quite possible the answer to both of those questions is yes, that's, you know, it's happening. We don't know. Um, I mean, Suey Su- 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 would have to stay in her room and not oh, look, be yeah. anyone to, to, to yeah. obey those, those, yeah. those bail conditions. I mean, this the is... Bail, those, those bail conditions are absurd. I would suggest that they are not lawful bail conditions and that... Uh, if um, she went before a magistrate yesterday to, or today or tomorrow to get them varied, the magistrate, like I have done many times with protesters uh, and sort of our variation when I've stood there with the magistrate and said, uh, you know, before I've even started my submissions as to why they should be varied, the magistrate has said, well, Ms Higginson, I understand you'll be seeking a variation and we'll be getting one today. What bail conditions do you think are appropriate? I've often yeah, stood the- there and said, I-, I don't think any bail conditions are appropriate. Bail in and of itself is onerous enough. A bail undertaking yeah. is that you will be of good behaviour and you'll turn yeah. up to court yeah. on a certain date. And unless yeah. you are a flight risk or there is um, a serious risk of uh, injuring or harming or interfering with somebody else, then there's no need for restrictive bail. Um, if there is going to be a place restriction of bail, then it should only be in relation to where the offence was committed. But that's what what happened before. You, you, were, you yeah. were arrested and you were, or, or you were warned that you can't go in a particular forest. So I guess my point is the cops must know this is unlawful. Why are they doing it? Why do do they or do they or did we just get a silly cop who got a bit ahead of him or herself? Did we just get a silly cop? Because you know what? I hate to tell the world, but there are a few out there. It happens. We see them every day in the local courts having their silliness or their um, over overreaction or their overreach or their excessive use of their powers corrected by a magistrate in court. We see it every day. So there are plenty of cops out there that do the wrong thing, um, and that's just a fact. It's very hard as well, um, you know, if, if, for example, there is pressure coming from up high, that can be a motivation for cops being sillier than they might ordinarily be. It's also, you will also just get cops that take it up on their own kind of mission to make things harder and more severe for people. And, you know, it is just fraught. It's fraught with uh, damage and it's fraught with harm. It's unnecessary. Uh, You know, overreacting and responses is contrary to law. We've got uh, judgments from judges in in, uh, cases in Australia and which have been adapted from the British courts where they've dealt with the Extinction Rebellion protests that have happened in London. And, you know, there's, I don't have it in front of me, but judgments that discuss, you know, my Lord, civil disobedience has, you know, an honourable and proud history in this country. And so often 
you know, the protesters are vindicated in history, whether it be Mm. the suffragettes or, of course, in our case in Australia, we have national parks, which are world heritage properties, which are generating millions Mm. of dollars every day and every year for Australians. And we only have them because of these incredible people that take their life into their own hands and stand up for um, the protection of the natural environment. And in some of those cases, what the judges have actually said is civil disobedience is a real thing. It's There's a history to it. There's an understanding about how it operates in this country. What happens is and if a person engaging in civil disobedience where it they undertake, it's like an unwritten contract, they undertake to take their action to exercise their right to breach a law, and that's a fundamental misunderstanding. In a, in a peaceful way. In a non-violent way. Yes. And when that, with as little inconvenience as possible, and when that, and, and damage, no damage, and the other end of that contract is the police and the magistrates will act with restraint and the courts understand the motivation for acting in that way deserves some degree of clemency and that's what our law says. So these cowboys out there hurting women, women over the women or, or, or young 75, people old, 75 a 75-year-old woman um, and anyone for that matter, to hurt them or to make their predicament more unsafe than the contract they've they've walked into when they put their life on the line, trusting they do it in good faith and trusting the state that the state will not hurt them. For then for a cowboy to come along and break that contract is shameful and we need to hold them to account. It's just appalling when I hear these stories. And I I will absolutely be taking this up. Um, I've got a drafted letter and I'll be taking this up with the Assistant Police Commissioner at the moment yeah. who I think is a very decent human being and would be horrified to know this has happened. So, so just to finish off, um, having covered God knows how many of these things now, my back's ruined and um, et cetera, but five of them. There, there has been. It started off very civilized, and it's it's grown in um, antipathy and in rule cutting and, and in um, aggression and in failure to look after the safety of of lock ons, and and now these bail conditions. I I don't know if the protest is going to escalate, but if it does, I believe that that, that um, it was very useful. You know, at the Bulga one when you were there as a lawyer. Um, I think you're, were you also at the Lawn one? Or no. you were at another no, one? I'm not quite sure. Oh, uh, was it the Yarrett? Yarrett. Yeah, oh, the Yarrett. Yes. Yeah. Well, the Yarrett was a pretty good one, wasn't it? Um, but yeah. uh, I I believe that it is um, it is imperative that there is a, a lawyer there if there's another protest because, it, you know, the, uh, uh, one of the truck drivers rammed through a, a, a protest banner uh, the guy from ANL, you know, Australian Native Landscapes, got up and started swearing like a trooper. Another truck driver went right up to the entrance and said, oh, none of you have look as though you've been washed, you've had a, a shower for a week. I couldn't believe it because all the protesters looked freshly showered and he looked unwashed for a week. The whole <laughs> thing was just, it was really bad. It was really aggressive and mm. nasty 
And I, I would hope that, you know, one of these big groups or EDO or something can um, just just put someone on the ground to keep it nice because it, it it's getting very, very ugly um, in, in my opinion. You know, back in a while back, there used to be an incredible group uh, called Lawyers for Forests and it was lovely and they used to have these white T-shirts with embroidered legal observer on the front um (laughs) where we need to bring these good folk back don't we um it is really interesting though how um yeah how sometimes having a legal observer and a a legal police liaison um can really um hold that front line to account Um, that's the other thing they need is police liaison they they really do it's uh but you know, it's you know, getting, though, it's getting a bit the, scary. To be honest, it's getting a bit scary out there. I I think so. And you, but you know, again, I put this down to right now a serious lack of leadership and a lack of vision, a lack of compassion on the part of our political leaders. And the reason being is, when I first got into Parliament, one of the first things I had to watch was the uh, we put up in the Parliament. The Greens, my colleagues, put up a disallowance motion to the anti-protest laws that the coalition government brought into the parliament with uh, fury. And I will have to watch Labor standing there in lockstep with the government voting against our disallowance motions. Now, when we spoke to those disallowance motions, trying to undo the anti-protest laws, the dangerous laws that the government had put in place, the the anti-democracy and intolerance laws. And this is not just me as the Greens or a lawyer who's acted for hundreds of protesters all across Australia in courts and been on the front lines and seen what we're talking about. This is from the Civil Liberties Council, the Bar Association, the Law Society, um, the Human Rights uh, Legal Centre, all of these incredible professional bodies made appeals both to the uh, the state government and the state opposition labour and said, please don't go down this path. This is a dangerous path. It will cause harm to real people on the ground, people who care, people who are passionate and people who believe deeply in democracy. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a war on democracy with what we've done. We've created this environment where police think it is their right and duty to go and teach these people on the, li- on the front line a lesson rather than do their job. Their job is to maintain the peace and the safety of New South Wales people. And when they are on the come to protest and start telling people about how good logging is, ripping them off lock-ons by their neck, we've got a serious crisis and our state is failing. Yeah, well, that, that, that particular cop yesterday, he said straight out that he had no responsibility to ensure the safety of that, that protester. He said, she, she got herself in this position, she can get herself out of it. Come on, Pentark, lift her up. You know, it was it was just, yeah, yeah. It was uh, he he was very very aggressive. Um, well, anyway, I I need his just, name. Just I need his my name. Uh, yeah. His name is Troy. Uh, what's it? Something blue pet or something like that. I've got his name. Um, it's it's on my Twitter right. feed. Um, but um, yeah, he was uh. Yeah, it was. It, someone said to me, "Oh, that's because the cops, you know, have a drink at, at the pub 
with the loggers in, in this town. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but boy, oh boy, I all the other protests I've been to, lead blockade and all the all the other ones um, with the Bulga, there has been um, uh, at least the appearance of a civil a, 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 a distance, a separation between the police and the loggers. And yesterday there was a team, which was the police and the loggers. And it was um, it was really scary. And it's the Port Macquarie, it's the Hastings um, lot. One thing someone mentioned to me, it's like because Port Macquarie is much more progressive than Taree. Taree is sort of deep national, but when it's when the protests have been in Taree, it's been um, it's it's been very professional. But I, I don't know what's going on in Port Macquarie, but. Boy, oh boy, it's scary. It's really scary. Mm. I, I actually was scared for the. Um, I, I was scared that uh, Ella Baker um, w- w- was going to be badly injured. It, it was that bad. Well, you know, look. I mean, we also saw, uh, and it's the first time I've ever seen it. Uh, the engagement of a private arborist to, um, you know, approach one of the tree sitters in one of the protests and. I got I instantly when I saw that got very concerned about that. Uh, particularly, perhaps it was the you know the indication I got when the arborist drove up at top speed and drove through the protesters at top speed, top speed, and then put on his brakes angrily and then walked over to go and assist the police. And that sort of thing is a clear indication that we're on dangerous turf. Um, and you know the res- the response from that I later learned was yeah there was some slightly unsafe cowboy um, action from that particular rescue. And, you know, these people, yeah, so we've got to be really careful, you know. The reason people haven't been hurt um, is because we have prioritised maintaining safety and that's that's our job and that's the job of the New South Wales Police. So it is really concerning. And as, as, you know, as we predict, I don't think, I, I think protest is likely to escalate you know that said the relationship between the police and the forestry corporation as well and the contractors um i think there's some there's some real truth to that i've seen that actually i've seen that in subpoena documents in court cases that i've acted in where we've subpoenaed documents uh where somebody's being charged uh, with a with a uh, protest activity and we're pleading not guilty and with subpoenaed documents and I've seen emails between contractors, forestry corporation and police and I found that very surprising, the relationships there. of yeah. I mean, I suppose that's regional uh, New South Wales to some extent but I've definitely seen some much closer unprofessional relationships without that objectivity that the police is meant to exercise when they're in the course of their duties. And, you know, in a, you know, it's a, definitely a, a, a deep it's a rural seat in, in a way um mile lakes and, and tari is a, a very um conservative town but you know naturally there's going to be confrontation you know this is a, a big issue and there are people who are deeply divided I, I just would have thought it'd be good if the police yes um I'm just I'm just trying to look up this the name of this um, this policeman, but I'll I'll have to tell you after after the. I'll, I'll, I'll look on your Twitter feed. I'll go and find yeah. it and add it okay. to my letter on your Twitter feed. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much, Sue. I know you're really really busy, and um, if you if you'd care to, I'd, I'd love to um, I'd love to read your forestry uh, 
your, your forestry policy if you want to throw me an email. Um, Absolutely, will do. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining the, um, you know, the forest frontline and seeing it for yourself firsthand because, as I say, when you, um, you can't unsee, can you, what you see? Oh, God, no. God, no. It's been an education. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed this No Fibs podcast. Until next time, goodbye.